Hello, and welcome to the Fight Back podcast. My name's Georgia. I'm an exercise scientist, kickboxer, and the founder of the Fight Back Project. I'm here to inspire and empower women to try martial arts by interviewing experts on combat sports, mental health, and the combination of the two, as well as incredible women that have faced their demons by going to training. If your gut is telling you that you want to try a combat sport, but you're afraid, welcome aboard. We are all here to face our fears together. To my ladies that are already training, or you already know how incredible doing combat sports is for your mental health, but I want you to think, can you think of somebody who could share this magic as well, who you could share it with? I'm hoping that when you listen to this podcast, you'll be inspired to do that, to reach out. Today's interview is critical listening for all women and to everyone that loves a mother, a sister, or a partner. So everyone. Today, I'm speaking with Kathy Van Ingen. She is a Canadian researcher who has implemented a trauma-informed boxing program called Shape Your Life. So Shape Your Life is free. It's a non-contact boxing program for women who have experienced violence. If all you've ever known is surviving, if you've never felt safe in your body, just know that 1,800 women have walked into the Shape Your Life gym and felt empowered for the first time, and you can too. Okay, Kathy, welcome. Very, very, very big welcome to the Fight Back podcast. Can you introduce yourself to everyone? Sure. Uh, thanks so much for having me. First of all, I'm Kathy Van Ingen, and I'm a professor at Brock University, which is a university outside of Toronto in the Niagara region in Canada. And I've been running uh, a program called Shape Your Life for 13 years now, and really been doing a lot of research on uh, trauma-informed physical activity and working with survivors of violence. Take us back to the very start. How did Shape Your Life start? started in uh, 2007 and I it, it st- started off of uh, not a very direct plan but essentially I was starting to research women's boxing boxing in particular and, and I was writing some historical stuff on men's boxing and I started wondering where the narratives were on women's boxing and as I started searching that out um, I, I, I learned there was women's boxing but it was often not captured. It was often ignored, erased, uh, missing from the dominant narrative. And so I started seeking out boxing gyms. And there was a boxing gym in Toronto that it was Canada's first all-female run, uh, female-led boxing gym. And it was the Toronto News Girls. And I went to their gym and uh, did a, just an introductory boxing class and immediately fell in love with how visceral it was and how powerful it was and I'd been a competitive athlete played two different varsity sports and you know ran marathons and had lots of sporting experience but there was something different about boxing and being in that environment and I started talking to other women in the gym about how it changed them what its impact was what it was like to feel your own strength and strike and uh and and to work through training and boxing and I started thinking most of the women in the gym were white collar. They had resources, they had supports. And we started thinking, what would it be like to help women get access to a gym and get into the gym who otherwise wouldn't? And that's really the start of Shape Your Life. I started looking and and found uh, 
a call for funding from, uh, it was for victims of violence. And I put together a proposal along with some other people about uh, a boxing program. And we thought we'd try it for a year and see what it was like. And in that first year, we had 125 women and it was remarkable. We had such significant changes and impacts and stories and uh, the research was telling us how important it was. You didn't even have to be a researcher. You just had to be in the gym and see the change in people's bodies and in their lives. And after that year, we knew we had to keep going. So we just have been uh, struggling along, getting sometimes great big grants and other times existing off fundraising, existing off of, uh, we've done, you know, tons of really scrappy things to keep the program going and we've managed to do that this long which we're really grateful for so so far we've had over 2,000 women in the program uh, female identified persons in the gym uh, we've opened it up uh, and learned along the way we've been working with a lot of uh, different organizations and we've just started the last uh, year working with youth seven and up so we've got some funding to do that so um, working with a, a variety of people and we've managed to get provincial funding, municipal funding from the city of Toronto at one point. Uh, we have federal funding right now. Um, but, you know, we've existed uh, by, again, being pretty scrappy and, and strategic on, on moving forward. And I want to dig into a lot of the things you brought up just then, but we'll start at the start. What is the history of women in boxing? Hmm. It, you know, it's funny. I, I really was searching to hear stories. I love history of boxing and, you know, Joe Lewis, Jack Johnson, all these amazing histories. And I started searching and um, women's boxing has been around since the very roots of the, the modern sport. It's been around since the 18th century in England, but try to find those stories and you have to be, you have to be detective or a researcher. And I don't think we should have to be, you know, highly skilled in those ways to find these, these stories. Um, basically it's always existed on the fringes of the sport. And I started looking in particular, I was writing a lot about the earliest black male boxers. And I started thinking, where are the stories of the earliest black female boxers? Because the first time we hear of them in any sort of popular media, it was in the mid 70s out of New York. And there was a couple of uh, black women, uh, Jackie Tonawanda and Marion Lady Tiger uh, Tremere, who, was, who were trying to apply for their boxing licenses when they weren't being uh, given to women. And so I thought it can't be in the mid 1970s, late 70s, the first time black women were boxing. So I started doing uh, some research into this missing black female boxer. And I found that despite there being no public record of it until 1978, there were uh, tremendous amounts of, of women fighting in the 1860s. Uh, I found these amazing stories of black women fighting bare knuckled, fighting for the, for the title of the um, heavyweight female champion. Uh, these amazing little stories coming up in little newspaper slips up, newspaper uh, excerpts I would find, little um, historically black newspapers would have little stories. And I just pieced these together and, and could, could put together this uh, kind of more coherent story about women's boxing. We know that um, in the more modern sense, it was legalized first, the first country in the world was Sweden in 1988. And that really had a a cascading effect on other countries. Canada was the second country in the world that, to lift the ban on amateur boxing. I mean, for most of its existence, women were not legally allowed to do this. Um, in Canada, it, it, the, in our constitution, it banned women from boxing or wrestling in public. Uh, 
until 1991, which is remarkable. Um, the United States followed and, and legalized it in 1993 and then England in 1997. Um, when In Canada, when they were trying to legalize it, there was a, a boxer named um, Suzanne Hotchkiss, and she applied for a license to, to be an amateur boxer at the provincial level and was denied. And there's a story that ran in the newspaper, the Toronto Star, and the headline was, uh, she's down but not out. Suzanne Hotchkiss insists she has the right to be a lady boxer, even though Boxing Ontario says it could give her cancer. And there was this narrative that it would cause breast cancer. And so the Canadian Breast Cancer Society even had to put out in a pamphlet at one point that boxing does not cause breast cancer. Um, so there's all these, you know, medical prohibitions, moral prohibitions against women's boxing. And so that fascinates me. What is so dangerous about women being powerful in their own bodies? And I've had so many conversations with people saying, look, I'm just not comfortable with women and violence and women, you know, it's, and I'm like, we're very comfortable with violence against women. If you turn on any TV show, the character, the narrative arc is, is often focused on solving a mystery of some violence against women, some murder, some rape, something. Very comfortable with that in a, as, a, as a cultural story. But there was such caution and hesitancy around women being powerful in a boxing ring. And that fascinated me. And so that really just you know, pursued, made me pursue more stories and, and more thinking in this area. What else? What else do you think? Why is that? Why do we have that perception? I'm sure you could talk about it for ages, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, even look at uh, there's just such disparity with um, with thinking about women as being powerful. Um, you know, e so even when we do bring in women's boxing, legalize it. So women's boxing debuted in the Olympics in 2012, the first time, right? It was heralded as this great moment in gender equity. And it wasn't really that, though, because men had 10 weight classes. And you could be, you know, if you were a guy, you could be from 108 pounds to a, to a heavyweight of over 200 pounds. They brought in three weight classes. So men had 10, women had three. So you, could, you had to squeeze into either 112 pounds, 132, or 165 pounds. Like, that's not equitable, right? Um, so, yeah, it, it, so even when we do kind of get access to it, it, it still hasn't been, uh, and, it, and it's getting better, but there's still been a lot of barriers to it. But yeah, I mean, one of the things about Shape Your Life is that it's non-contact. And what we mean by that is we don't have sparring. We, we're very careful um, about not putting anybody in a position where they're going to have uh, fists or anything coming towards them. And so it's really changing this narrative, which I think gave some funders and some people who were initially hearing about us uh, some breathing room to think about women's boxing because we had adapted it so much. Um, but, you know, I, when I ask people that question about their discomfort with women's boxing, and then I ask them if they watch any episodes of CSI or any other you know, crime series or anything or watch any TV at all, uh, and I said, well, how much violence against women do you actually, are you comfortable with? And I ask them to think about that. And then that really does open up some conversations. Yeah, I think like being a female kickboxer and knowing many female kickboxer, like you get told the I guess the excuse for the reason why people feel uncomfortable I don't know if it's the real reason but ev almost every man that I've ever told will be like 
oh, it's just there's like a, a bit of a cringe. And then they'll say something like, oh, but aren't you worried about your pretty face? Like, oh, you know, but aren't you worried about, yeah, some, some, it's always something along those kind of lines. What would you say to women who keep hearing that over and over again, wanting to try boxing? Well, I, and I think that's true. It just happened. And I think of, you know, like there's a lot of pretty, pretty men, you know, men that have boxed Ollie, you know, was pretty man. And uh, De La Hoya was a pretty man. Right. And, and, and they stayed pretty. And I just, you know, so I joke, you know, and say that you need to be a good boxer then, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you will, you will stay pretty. Um, but I think now that there's a, bit more uh, access to seeing female boxers and the range of female boxers uh, and the increasingly great skill level we're seeing um, that that's changing a bit, but there's still such hesitancy with that. Um, you know, I think it, it speaks to sort of women's role more broadly in, in society um, and this notion of protect, protect uh, the pretty, I know some women's boxing clubs in Toronto and in this area have actually taken that moniker and will we'll run classes uh, about protect the pretty, you know, and it's about teaching defensive classes and, you know, and they just take, so they take that and just run with it and say, let's protect the pretty, let's learn how to be good boxers. Yeah. They're taking the piss. That's what we would say. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. I want to go into the trauma-informed. What does it mean to have a trauma-informed boxing class? So trauma-informed, and really we've only started to use that language in the last six years. So we've come more and more into that uh, thinking. Even though we always were doing it, we've learned a lot more uh, of of what that means as we're running the program. Essentially trauma-informed means that uh, there is an understanding that any participant in the pro- program has experienced trauma and and feels that they're they feel unsafe in their body. So this is the the premise of someone who's experienced violence has lost control over their body. In the, in that moment of violence, you're not in control of your own body, and that is a fundamentally terrifying experience, right? And it it often causes you to freeze or to um, you know, to have a fight, flight, or freeze reaction. And those reactions we know now, and scientifically, they stay with us. They can stay with us. Um, They can impact you chronically so that you feel unsafe in your body. Um, And and so it's just operating from that premise of knowing that safety begins in the body. So running a program where um, there's a, a lot of attention to how to uh, acknowledge people's histories understand their reactions or hesitancies to certain things. Um, someone who's experienced a lot of trauma and violence might not feel safe on a gym floor doing ab workout, you know, laying on their back on a mat might be a terrifying position for their body. Um, I've even had women talk about um, because they've had such painful experiences in their bodies and through their bodies with violence that exercise was terrifying for them. Because if you think about exercise and boxing um when you're experiencing violence what happens your heart starts beating in your chest and you start (sighs) start breathing heavy what what happens when you exercise that same physiological reaction and so for some people they were so terrified with that it felt like a loss of control it felt like this so for them to, to to acknowledge that with us and to get used to um that that experience in a safe environment can reprogram what that feels like for somebody um, so trauma informed is, is all those kind of things. We, we just really operate from a premise where we th- 
where we consider that women need and people who've experienced violence need to have uh, an experience of the body where they're safe, where they're in control, um, in charge of it. And that can happen in lots of ways. It doesn't always have to be boxing. And I want to be careful about, you know, or any physical intervention. But women in particular who've experienced trauma are offered talk therapy or they're medicated. And the body is left completely out of that equation. But it's their bodies that they have felt unsafe in. And so the importance, and there's more And I, from listening to your previous stuff, I know you've talked about Bessel van der Kolk and the body keeps the score. And there's all this great research based on um, some really great neurological science around what it takes to unpack that in people's bodies. We've got women who come in with insomnia, anxiety, or they're hyperarousal, they have depression, nightmares. And often their body's been left out of dealing with that and they're medicated. So by moving their bodies into a space where they can feel powerful, get their body under control, under their own control with boxing, even if they're not highly skilled, it doesn't matter. Just learning how to be present in your body, to not disassociate from your body, to connect it and to feel and to engage it in a way where you have total control is so important. So in part, that means it's very important in trauma-informed programs to have a lot of choice. We're not as directive. When you walk into a traditional boxing gym, we're very different, right? A lot of traditional boxing gyms, you don't even get to go in the ring for six months until you've earned your way into the ring, right? Until you've hit a certain fitness level. And on, on day one, we'll let you know uh, participants into the ring and do, and do pad work in there or do something in there just to get them in. We also be very careful about uh, this notion of choice and control, which is so important. So we, for example, even when we're doing a warm up, we don't just say, okay, pick up your ropes. We're going to skip for the next, you know, so many rounds. We have that as an option, but then we have two or three other led warm ups where they can join in a little more, um, maybe some dynamic stretching, maybe something that's not as high impact, something where they can choose to, to do that. Um, so it's, it's more invitational than directive, but has high engagement anyways. There's still a lot of interest in, and um, participation from, from our boxers. Um, and our coaches have all taken a workshop with us on what trauma-informed is. And we always have food at the program for our participants to access. There's a lot of food insecurity for some of our boxers. Um, we always have access to other services. So we've got social workers that are involved in the program. We try to do things like if, if they need to find safe housing or if they need to have access to other programs that we can put them in, in contact with people who can help them work that, those through. Um, and just really like it's, there's a whole bunch of sort of things to think about when you're running a trauma-informed program, but those are some of the really big ones. It's just being, um, you know, letting, being so careful about safety, uh, the physical space. Violence and trauma is chaos. So your gym has to be a tightly clean, efficient, smooth space that's not chaotic, right? We, we, want, we want to just know unexpected stuff. Before we even turn on the, uh, the boxing timer with that screeching, you know, the, the loud bell, mm-hmm. we'll introduce the sound to the boxers the first day. We sit down and we do like a meet and greet and we just, they can come in their street clothes. They're, some of them are so anxious. So we're like, just come, we're just going to eat and talk. That's all we're going to do, sit on the floor in the gym and talk. And we'll say, like, here, this is a heavy bag. This is, here's your coaches. Here's the space. Here's where your change. We also will um, 
provide them with uh, photos of the space so they can sort of just get in their minds what, what it is they're walking into. So for some, that's even a barrier. So it's just thinking about all those things that might prevent from somebody from coming into the gym. Uh, as often as we can, we have support for daycare. Um, we, we've given women money for them to find their own daycare providers. Uh, we pay for transit to and from the program. So uh, it's not going to cost the participants anything to come. Um, when we do that by providing a, once there are two tokens to, for the subways, one to cover them getting there and one to get home. So just really trying to remove barriers and then uh, focusing on the person over performance, uh, keeping it really technically sound training, but never privileging, uh, you know, we're not there to manufacture fighters or boxers. We're there to make sure these women have uh, an amazing experience in the gym and feel powerful and, and get to play and a heavy bag is the cheapest form of therapy and is so powerful and important. And it's there all the time. You don't have to book a you know, time to go, you know, if you're not limited to 50 minutes, like it's, it's brilliant. And, and it's something to do to care for yourself and, and seeing that change in women's bodies when they start to, even their physical, the physical body will change from them coming in. Uh, and just seeing how they carry themselves over the course of the program is amazing. So that's a little bit of, of it. It's, uh, you know, we, we keep learning from what, what uh, science is saying and what other health professionals are saying and adopting strategies, looking at what is trauma-informed yoga doing, adopting strategies where, you know, we're, we're, uh, we nick from everybody we can to, to make our program better. So we keep learning uh, what to do. But really at its core, it's just about to recover from violence or trauma, you have to feel safe and in charge of your own body. It's, it's that simple. On trauma-informed yoga, one of the comments that I've got from some of the psychologists that I've been speaking to here about trying to bring a program forward in Australia is that trauma-informed yoga is less risky in terms of re-traumatization. So you're not likely to push someone into a space where they go past their window of tolerance to a point where they would dissociate and then have a bad experience and therefore end up feeling worse in much the way that talk therapy can end up doing that by forcing people to talk about what happened when their body's not ready. Once you've got someone settled into the space and they're feeling less anxious about everything and they're on the heavy bag, like how high is the risk that once they start hitting it, it triggers something? And what do you do in that kind of situation? We, what we do is say, yeah, you're probably going to get triggered. <laughs> but you will get triggered on the subway. You're going to get triggered watching a TV show. You're going to get triggered when there's a certain smell. So we don't protect them from what is already happening from them. We don't pretend to do that. But what we do say is, you're going to be safe in here and you have control over what happens when you're feeling that way. So we've had some participants who will be on the heavy bag and will, and we're, we're just doing, uh, you know, some, maybe some speed work and in, in intervals with some, um, some heavy, you know, slower work, striking work, and they'll start to cry and you'll see somebody at the heavy bag crying. And instead of sort of, you know, going, oh my God, what's happening? And stopping class and turning off the music, you know, simply a coach will walk over to them and they might just stand beside them and say, you're doing great. Just breathe, breathe. And they'll keep hitting and they'll keep, and, the, and they'll, that might be a moment, a really important moment for somebody to work through something. Or they might say like, I'm done. And they'll say, okay, do you want to sit with, uh, do you want to come to a private space and we have a corner? Do you want to sit here? Can I bring you a glass of water? And maybe five minutes later, they're back up doing it again. 
So we don't shy away from the difficult work that is being in your body. And it doesn't matter if you're on a yoga mat or walking on the street. If you've experienced trauma, you're always carrying that backpack until you're not. <laughs> so um, we, we just really, we try not to use that language of like, you know, when we say safe space, we're talking about physical safes, but it's, it's people are bringing in with them all these different experiences and we can't control that. And we've had, um, you know, I have so many stories pop in my head when I hear this of, of women who, you know, will express those moments and then they'll, they'll say how important it was for them um, to, to, to breathe through that. Right. And to, and to breathe through that pounding chest and the, <sighs> that was the, the very thing their body was doing when they were experiencing violence and to, and to, and, and to work through that. Um, so we just, we just don't shy away from it and we let them know it's okay and, and they're safe. And we, um, and we're just really open about that. And and other boxers know not to like, you know, it, it, this is not a thing where everyone kind of dances around that woman's purse. We, we, you know, we like, we really make sure we give them space. Um, and it, it's become normalized. It's really become normalized. And because we react to it that way, it sort of sets a tone that that's, that's okay. Somebody's working through something. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really great. Uh, I know you guys did a thing where you ripped up the old mat and our women painted pictures. Can you tell some of those stories? Oh my They're God. So beautiful. That was amazing. Um, so we were needing to replace the canvas and on the boxing ring and um, the owner of the gym at the time was pulling it off. And there was a woman in the gym who was a painter and she just said, Hey, can I have a piece of that to paint on? And then it, in through conversation, we kept thinking, wow, it is canvas, <laughs> you know? And so we cut it into 80 pieces and stretched it and framed it. And after women had boxed with us for a period of time, we just, we just piloted it. Like we really were just trying things and seeing what it was like. But one of the women in the program was a painter. And part of what we do, I should have mentioned too, is everyone has a boxing name. Um, and it's just a really fun way for, for women who want to sort of keep their anonymity in the class, they can do that, but it lets them sort of shed their, their name. They're no longer Karen. Now they're, you know, now they're some, some other vicious fighting name. And, um, we had a boxer named Splatter who was a painter and she offered to, uh, basically be our guide. And, and we had, we just piloted it the first time we had, I think 10 boxers gave them all a canvas that they could pick and we didn't even have enough uh, colors of paint. So we had to mix paint to make, you know, green and blue and all that stuff. And basically we just said, um, paint anything. It could be related to boxing or not. And, uh, and then we just talked about what was on the canvas when we were done. And then we let participants take the canvas home and it, the kind of artwork that started being produced and the stories about it were so amazing that we've held three art shows um, and which were great for raising awareness. And we let the, the boxers, uh, they could take their painting home and then we would bring them back for the, for the art show and put them up in a gallery with the text of their, um, what they wanted to say about their painting and who they were. So some of them used their real names. Some would want to be identified as somebody who survived domestic violence, family violence, um, stranger violence, any of that, or, and some didn't want their name, but the, the narrative next to the image was so powerful. Um, there, there were images that were stark 
um, there were one of a woman who was, uh, you could tell the image was a woman who was uh, gagged, uh, blindfolded, and there was a tear uh, coming down her face. And um, in her narrative, she talked about facing death and that by the time she was a, a very young child, she'd face death for the third time. And she talked about walking her corpse of a body into the boxing gym until she learned how to breathe again. And she said, I guess I've always been a fighter. And she wrote this incredible narrative along this powerful image. And it, it's communicating so much. And I guess the other thing I should have said earlier about Shape Your Life is that we don't talk. We don't encourage, the, we don't encourage or ask people to tell us their stories. We never, they never have to disclose. Almost all the women have said, look, any program I go into as a survivor of violence, I have to tell my story. I have to have this confessional where I tell how I was traumatized, by whom, gets recorded on some clinical notes, I put on a waiting list, and then I get to come into a group. And so the women are always ready to tell us the story, and we're just like, no, like, what do you need? Do you need shoes? What do you need? Um, you don't have to tell us anything. There's no disclosure. Of course, if they ever want to tell us, we're there, and we listen, and we've heard a lot of stories, but it's not a requirement, which is huge. Um, the, sorry, I got sidetracked, but the painting, the painting, uh, another amazing image, there was a, a participant who was in a wheelchair. Um, and we've worked with a lot of different abilities and uh, mobilities. We would just lower the heavy bag, lower the speed bag rack, um, and, and work with people who have used mobility aids or, or wheelchairs. And uh, she was in a wheelchair because she uh, tried to kill herself and she jumped off a building and survived, but uh, was paralyzed, partly, partially paralyzed. And her picture was uh, a boxing glove and above it, a tear, a big tear that was going to, you know, when it dropped, was going to hit the boxing glove. And then she had all these hands, just hands that she traced of her own hand on the canvas. And uh, she said, this is me and I don't know yet whether the boxing glove is going to shatter the tear or the tear is going to saturate the boxing glove. You know, she was at this moment of discovery and just painted that and talked and let it be that that's where she was at. Um, there, you know, really we've had uh, women who painted and said they were, you know, young mothers, young single mothers. Um, and they talked about fighting for their kids, fighting for themselves and realizing they've always been fighting and in recognizing their own strength. Um, just really powerful, um, powerful and playful and important stories that women are carrying around. And everybody, everybody in that gym has an amazing story. And giving them the opportunity to, to giving other people the opportunity to hear their story um, as they want to tell it in the format they want, whether it's with words or with art, has uh, been really great. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been an amazing thing. And really, it was an accidental discovery. You know, we, we didn't have this grand plan. And it was the best accident. Yeah, because I mean, for your research, right, you can't really do qualitative research, because then you would be asking people to tell about their trauma and their experiences, which kind of goes against the whole program. So just yeah, happy miracle that then you were able to capture all this amazing <laughs> qualitative data. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I'm really careful. I always ask, I only ever ask the participants what their experience was like in the gym or tell me about your experience. What, what affect has boxing had on you? And then I just need to get out of the way. They have so many stories and they may choose to tell 
what happened to them or the kinds of histories their body has gone through. They don't need to. They can just talk about uh, where they're at in this moment and what boxing is giving them and why they return to keep boxing. And that is uh, incredibly powerful um, to hear those stories. We've also started doing some quantitative in the last, uh, so our federal government started this initiative where they had a hundred million dollars for domestic violence initiatives and research. And uh, we'd done a lot of work to make sure that we were always clear about what shape your life was and how we, you know, we just kind of lobbied to make sure we could get more funding and, and worked with different agencies. And we, we got this money and, and, it required us to, to measure basically the impact of Shape Your Life on women's mental and physical health. And so before participants came in, they would do uh, a survey before they even hit, hit a heavy bag, hit anything or, you know, did any classes. And then at the end of 14 weeks, we'd do the same scale and measure mental and physical health outcomes. And by the week eight, so midway through, we had increases in self-esteem, uh, mental health, personal and interpersonal agencies, um, quality of life reports, resilience and perceived physical ability, um, which were really important to sort of let the funder know that their use of, you know, our use of tax dollars was really efficient and, uh, and worthwhile. But to me, the stories that the women told in the qualitative stuff around what effect has boxing had on you uh, were so much more colorful and, and rich than the numerical data, which was important and nice to have that we know that these measures uh, existed and, and were, it was a good intervention. Um, but it was really the stories of, of women talking about the changes they experienced in their lives that were so key. Was it difficult to capture data right at the start, you know, before you've earned someone's trust, you, you're giving them like a slip. How did you approach that? Yeah, so they knew kind of coming into it that this was affiliated with Brock University and that this was a research project. And we just absolutely assure them that they don't have to do this. Um, you, you can come and you can re- you can not fill out a single form. You're still welcome to, in the program. Um, because I, I think they felt they had experienced such a powerful experience in Shape Your Life, they, they felt almost obligated to do the research because sometimes it was a bit laborious for them. They had to fill out a lot of forms, and um, but they would often do it. And uh, I, I think because they, they wanted to ensure it was there for other women, which was really important. Um, but yeah, they, they, uh, yeah they, would, they would be, you know, quite interested in... Um, I think my favorite thing, though, as I mentioned, was really not a surveys. It was we would sit and have focus groups and I would also do individual interviews. But I would sit with we would kick the coaches out of the gym. Um, they would go to get a coffee and we'd sit in the ring and we just pass around a tape recorder or just, you know, put our, our put our phone on record. And uh, and I would just ask that question. What effect has boxing had on you? And as the phone would go from each person and they would tell their stories, uh, some would shed tears, some would, you know, just how powerful it was, that experience, to uh, to have a place where they could come feel safe and be provided with a way to f- get into their back, into their bodies. Um, and, and that, all the different ways they would tell that story was so powerful. Um, and again, we, 
you're working in, in a program like Shape Your Life, what's so different about it, you know, in any boxing gym, any, you know, any martial arts program, when women or anybody who's experienced violence are in a program, they're generally grouped by where they are in their recovery or healing or where they are. So you've got, you know, you might be doing sort of particular amount of group work. And then once you've hit a threshold, you're moved to the second group. So many people in Shape Your Life uh, were at all stages. We'd had participants who, uh, we had a woman in her 30s whose mother was murdered when she was 18 by persons unknown. They've never sorted out who killed her mom. And she was in the program for that experience. Uh, that that way of violence impacted her. Um, other women who were currently in situations where there was domestic abuse and violence happening, um, familial violence by parents uh, for for younger women, uh, they might say something like, you know, I've not been around a lot of safe adults in my life. Um, but it didn't matter what had brought them there because it didn't require that they had a, any kind of language around it or any kind of, um, they hadn't worked through, it wasn't necessary that they'd done that uh, therapeutized stuff. And to be honest, so many other women had come in and said, look, I've done art therapy, I've done talk therapy, I've done medication, I've done every therapy. I have this, I'm diagnosed with this, 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 this. And um, they got to step back and not be clients, not be therapeutized. They just got to come and box and still access the ways that was important and, and the things it gave them but they didn't have to pick up any kind of diagnosis to be there. And we preferred not knowing our coaches. We actually kept our coaches, you know, away from, we wanted our coaches to see them as, as boxers and do a trauma informed, but we didn't want coaches to have all the backstories. We, we wanted, if they, somebody wanted to disclose that to talk to the social worker or myself. Um, and some of it would be passed on if necessary. We had one um, participant who, you know, and these are things you don't really think about when you're running these programs, but, and we've had over 2000 participants and we had this one who um, had that moment of uh, a flashback and it was very powerful. And it, it happened every time she put on a boxing glove and took the Velcro to seal it around her wrist, right? Because she had been bound in her trauma and had her, had her wrist bound. And so anything, any enclosure or tightness on her wrist, she would have these panic attacks. And she immediately said, like, I've left every program I've ever started because this always happens at some point. And I'm going to, I'm going to have to not be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, I was ready to walk out and we just said, okay, wait, like you're in control here. So why don't we, why don't we cut the Velcro off the gloves or why don't we search for another glove or why don't, and we just kept working with this participant until she found a way because she was so great at communicating what worked for her or not that we could find a way to keep her in the program and keep her boxing. And she did move through that, but you have to have that moment where you're, you can have that difficult conversation and listen to somebody and then find a solution for them. And they're so good at taking care of themselves already that they can guide you. If you just listen. Can you touch on the distinction between it's important that women have an outlet and learn to feel safe in their body. And it's the fact that you need to know how to fight in order to feel safe in your body. As in, I mean, 
I think there's a lot of victim blaming so much that happens in society of like, oh, we, you know, why couldn't you have just pushed him off? Rah, rah, rah. And it's even something that I'll get often, which is like, oh, you know, if something ever happened to you as a woman, like you would know how to defend yourself. And I'm like, well, I mean, I think 70% or something like that of women freeze when they're in a violent situation in real life, not in the ring. Um, and I'm not trying to make, you know, any false assumptions that I'm preparing myself for, for real life. What is, what is that difference between feeling safe and comfortable in the body and knowing how to fight? That's a great question. It's, and there's a couple things I want to say. And one is, um, we're really careful that we don't say shape your life is self-defense. A lot of people will come to it, assuming they're going to learn self-defense. And we have to kind of unpick that from their brain because we're, you know, we're really careful not to do that. Um, And I think some people do, when we talked earlier about people's concern with uh, women who get into combat sport because they're going to be less attractive or they're going to wreck their beautiful face. The other thing is they also are okay with it if you, if women say, but I'm doing it to protect myself, if it's, if it's under the umbrella of self-defense, all of a sudden you're granted the good graces of everybody who otherwise would have criticized you for, for being a boxer. Um, and what I want to say to people who do that is, uh, Christy Martin, she was the first, uh, boxer on the cover of sports illustrated. She fought on Mike Tyson's undercard in 1996. She was a world champion boxer, a heavy puncher, you know, we could only, you know, most of us could only hope to be as skilled. And uh, her coach, who was her husband, um, shot her and stabbed her and left her for dead on the bedroom floor in 2010. You know, she was a boxer. That, so I, so I always let people know, you know, and there, this happens in, in, in men's boxing as well, where there's, you know, violence in, in their lives that boxing didn't save them from. So we, we try to extract it from that conversation of self-defense, but we do know that it does, um, when people feel like their body's in their own, under their own control, they will take more, they feel more authoritative over their body. So when there are those times where they can um, be firm around a boundary that they otherwise might have not, they can um they they're better able to firmly hold a boundary with a friend with a coworker, a colleague uh, a spouse um but we're, we're also you know we've been doing this long enough that we know in in families where there's a history of violence um and maybe trauma where if it's now just the mom and the kids as the mom gets into shape your life and starts to uh, really find her way back in her own body. Oftentimes the kids will react because they're losing the mom they knew. They're losing the dysfunctional mom and that's the only mom they knew. And they get freaked out when now there's a f- shift in the family dynamic. And so uh, sometimes a kid will get arrested or there'll be all these other things that happen because it's like they want their mom back. They want back the parent that they knew, even if it was an unhealthy environment. Um, so there's, so it's never a clean, simple line. Like you walk into a boxing gym and by the time you can throw a great left hook, your life's in order, right? Like it's never that simple of a narrative, but it gives women the tool and the community and it 
totally reduces social isolation around these things. It does all the other stuff that makes you get through. And also, I think, react, you react differently. So um, walking more confidently, not, you know, just not their entire body changes. So, so there's ways that they move through the world that are different. Um, but the other thing is that most, and I always have to, you know, remind folks about this when we have conversations about women's boxing and, and shape your life programs, most of these women are not um, dealing with violence from somebody they don't know. It's an intimate partner or it's a family member. So, you know, how effective do we expect someone to be to fight off and how, how many times should someone have to fight off uh, violence in their own home to earn the right to, to, you know, to say that they, you know, were successful in this. So it's, it's really changing the conversation and, and unpacking where those questions come from. Um, but I think there is still, you know, I, of course, on a certain level, there's a, a way in which women's bodies can work more effectively under physical stress. And so they might get out of a, out of a situation, but we never ever lead with this as a self-defense class. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. I think you put it really well and I've been trying to find those kind of words lately because it does come up. There does, it seems on the outside, like that would be the reason why, and that would be the reason why women would want to do any combat sports in the beginning but they're sport. Uh, that's the other thing too. You know, boxing is a sport with a lot of rules and a lot of things you can't do. And so it's really only effective against someone who's boxing you also. And I think the same thing with nearly every combat sport. There's always one place that you can't go to that your opponent could go to if they were actually trying to hurt you. So you're learning how to do that. You're learning how to and in, and in that, you know, you feel, you just feel amazing from doing that, knowing that your body is capable of doing it, but you are learning sport. I want to go into the funding that you've got <laughs> um, because like I said, before we were recording, I just think it's amazing that this, this kind of a program has got government funding. Like there's just nothing <laughs> like that, that I know of here. What's, what's that kind of journey look like? I know you did a lot of lobbying and a lot of, uh, I think sounds like strategic marketing of what the program looked like in order to accomplish that. Like, can you vaguely or briefly map yeah. out the road? Yeah. You know what? It definitely was not a straight line. Uh, again, the first time we were funded was uh, looking at money coming out of uh, the attorney general's office for victims of violence. And so I framed this whole thing uh, around the language of victimhood, which was so not the way Shape Your Life actually is, but we um, found that bit of money. But at the same time, what we did was we started talking to journalists and reporters uh, in our community about what we were wanting to do. And we finally got somebody who um, took an interest in the gym and came down and wrote a story before we actually got the first pot of funding. And it was, it was in that gym where there was a lot of women training. And, um, and I think they overheard, actually, there was uh, – it was – in the gym, there was times where it was co-ed or when, when men would be in the gym too. And there was a guy going in the ring for his first ever uh, time to do any ring work. And he looked just, you know, he was still figuring out how to hold, you know, hold his hands. And there were some experienced women boxers outside and they're like, oh, that's so cute, you know? And it was the, this reverse narrative of what we would normally see in a boxing gym. And the reporter heard that and 
it just kind of compelled them to want to, uh, you know, get into this culture that we had in the gym. And then these really, these women who were so fascinated with learning to box. And so um, that, that newspaper story um, in a major Toronto daily also gave us some room, I think, uh, as the, as the funding went in and then just really doing work around looking at different, um, many cities will have like safe community grants. And so thinking about women's safety and again, using whatever pool of money is there. um, And then using that as a way to support a shape your life program um, has been really good, but we really have been so lucky that the Canadian federal government has been funding uh, trauma-informed physical activity interventions, and then now funding other ones as well, um, looking at other ways sport can can um, be beneficial to pe- people who have experienced trauma. Um, but, but I definitely do think it's been all the side hustles, like the having the journalist in. Before we got f- the federal funding, we did meet with some people at Health Canada and um, and started having conversations. And actually, the, uh, the I can't remember what it's like. The, the the Canada's head physician, the title escapes me, came down to the gym with Health Canada with uh, people from the public health agency, and we sat in the boxing gym on chairs and we just talked. We just had a conversation about in the gym about why boxing was so important for women who've experienced violence. And, you know, looked around at the photographs and the art on the wall and the kind of uh, posters on the wall and, and what they were saying to women and around women's bodies. And we just had this conversation and they were uncomfortable. They said, we're not like, there's brain injuries, there's, you know, there's all these things about boxing that are terrifying to people that, you know, work in, in the medical field. And, and we just get, we stripped that back. We're like, it's non-contact you know they don't do this they don't do this this you know here but here's what they do get and they left that meeting understanding and it was the stories it was the stories sharing of what women had said they got from being in that gym that they didn't get from anywhere else and I guess one it's interesting because one of the things we didn't really talk about yet is like anger Mm -hmm. right and people who have a been oppressed who've experienced violence who are systematic you know facing systematic racism are you know all the are angry and boxing gyms accommodate anger like no place else and and there's a lot of women that said you know like they're struggling they have kids they have you know and there's no place for their anger there's no place for them safely do anything with their anger and we're like it is welcome in a boxing gym like you know you any body size any shape you can be 300 pounds and you can train in a boxing gym you can't go for a 10k run you can't you know you can't join a soccer club you can you can come into a boxing club um and being able to do that and 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 really frame it through that lens um and really make sure that we could report on measurable things really helped change it but again we did we had so many side hustles in between funding where we've we've had donations from twenty thousand dollars from you know we always joke and call them sugar mamas um and other people who've, who've given smaller small bits twenty dollars here and there we've we've had uh fundraisers where we've had uh we had a dominatrix be the uh, MC and we raffled off stuff 
to raise money. We had a punk band in at the gym raising money. Um, we had poets come in and do readings to raise money. So, um, you know, in those moments where we're not sitting on these great, terrific federal grants, we've, you know, had a really committed group that have done what we can to keep to keep it alive and on a smaller scale until we land the big ones. And and uh, yeah, so it's been it's been pretty great. Have you had to shut it down due to COVID? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, um, we have. And we just started with our youth program. Um, we are working with a program out in Alberta, which is in the western side of Canada and in, and in Ontario. And we were trained, our goal was to train 20 more coaches in the country to do trauma-informed boxing to work with youth. And um, we were in our second session and we had to shut down in mid-March because of COVID. And now we're moving it online. But the difficulty was we were working with um, two agencies in Alberta that were foster care agencies. So all the kids were in foster care. And uh, a mental health organization in the Niagara region. And we're working with, excuse me, um, we're working with, you know, kids who really needed very particular supports and relationships. Um, and so doing it on Zoom, which is what we're moving to now. And so for the next year, we're going to be online with these youth. Um, and I, I, I think there's some successes that can still happen, but so much harder to make connection with people when it's a screen. And where and um, the and if you think about it, you know, most for a lot of youth, their home is not the safe place, and this is where they're going to be now trying to learn trauma-informed <laughs> programming and boxing. So we we're going to have to be very careful with that, and so that's our next challenge: is how to do that well. Um, and we partnered up with an agency in Toronto, um, MJKO, um, Mentoring Junior Kids Organization who's been successfully doing this online and we're, and we're now working with them to do a trauma informed uh, and trying to reach kids nationwide. So our goal is over this next while to work with 600 youth across Canada. Um, and so that's, yeah, we'll see how, how that goes. What are your plans for the anger outlet part of that? Because that's my, my saddest part about running the fight back project online is that you can't, hit a heavy bag like not many people have a heavy bag in their in their living room like I mean you could throw pillows or something like that maybe like what's your plan for an anger outlet yeah I don't know I mean um I'm not sure how that's gonna work because yeah it's gonna be so different not having even like pads to hit or you know and um to do that so I don't know, you know, and, and we want to be, I think sometimes you can kind of feel like it feels almost cathartic when your body feels exhausted because you kind of can't even hold on to the anger anymore. But, but that's not the level of training we're going to be doing with, you know, young people who've, who've not necessarily moved a lot in the, in the last while and haven't done boxing. So I'm not sure that's going to be something we'll, we'll have to uh, think about. But one of the things we've found is participants often know what they need. And so just listening to participants, so we'll probably adapt it and change things over the next year to, to make it better and better for them. Yeah. I'm definitely interested to hear what you find out along the way, because it definitely lends itself to what we're doing here. Uh, and same thing, like really the online, I do like the idea of online because you have a camera you can switch off and that creates like an extra level of safe place, provided that the home is a safe space for you. 
uh, which is really, really nice. Uh, it's obviously there's no travel costs because there is no travel. You can do it from home. There's no, there's less fear around what you're wearing and other people being able to see you. So there are a lot of positives to online, but the the lack of connection thing is is definitely very difficult. Uh, are you going to run Shape Your Life for the women's program online as well too? Because I think yeah. we are right now. It's it's a smaller cohort, um, mm-hmm. but yes, we're we're running it, and it's um, we we tend to have sort of two groups. We run newer classes that will have people for three or four months. And then once they've done that three or four months, they're invited if they want you to join the group of sort of graduates mm-hmm. who have been doing it for a longer time. And, and then they can get into more technical work and more, and even start some defensive work then and, and do some other stuff that we wouldn't do. So we've done it with our sort of beginner group, our introductory group to, to ensure that they still have a place to finish the boxing. Um, and we've combined it with sort of a half hour of, uh, a little bit more intense stuff. And then we've got a, a trauma-informed yoga person who comes in and does a nice like restorative piece. So it's kind of nice to kind of get, you know, work through a really sort of jacked up part of the program and then have a more chill uh, restorative section too. Yeah. Ah, I like that as a combination. That's cool. Have you had anyone come through like starting completely online or has everyone moved to online who started in the gym? Yeah, we haven't started it online. So that would be a new, um, but the first time we're going to do that is with the youth program. Mm. Um, and so what we're doing is uh, the, the coaches that we're working with through MJKO, they also do some other uh, social programming with young, with the young kids. So they, they have like a karaoke uh, night or so where the coaches like you sing and they request songs and they just, yeah. So, and a, and a trivia night, like a win at Wednesday where there's some cash incentives. And so other ways to kind of build connections so they can learn a little bit about, about the youth. Um, and they're really careful to make sure that they like see on Instagram who's following and give them a shout out and, you know, say their name during a class to kind of keep some connection. So those are all things we're trying to learn as we're doing this, but uh, it's, it's, it's a new platform for us. Are you anticipating doing like many small groups or having it as bigger groups? Um, we're thinking the live groups will be smaller and we've actually offered to do some specialized groups to some agencies that, that have uh, some higher risk youth um, and youth that are involved with court systems. And um, we will do for agencies like a one or twice a week, 40 minutes um, sessions just for that group. But otherwise, no. And we have kids who never turn the camera on. So we don't know. We don't know if they're participating in what ways they're participating right so we're um some of the classes are much bigger that we can't track the thumbnails yeah it's the tricky part but i suppose if it's if it's a small group and you're saying like we fully give you permission to turn off the camera at any point because again it still has to be about choice then they can turn the camera off anyway i my thought is that you know if people are returning week after week then you know, they must be getting something out of it. They'll stop coming if it's not working for them. Because again, like you say, people know what they need better than anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any advice for us in Australia? So I'm starting to try and get the Fight Back project going, which has got a lot of similarities with what you guys are doing, but it's kickboxing because I suppose that's the area that I really know. Uh, And also I've 
I guess had some anecdotes around how powerful kicking can be, particularly for people where punching has been a part of their trauma. It's a more common thing to have been punched than to have been kicked. So starting with kicking can be like also another really great, a great segue into this is okay. And then we can look towards punching later. Uh, what advice do you have for starting up a program here in Australia? I think, um, it sounds like you're doing all the right things by, it sounds like you're talking to different uh, people that work in, in the sort of clinical psychology area. And so you're getting that stuff. I think it's just make sure you've got a great team, um, be flexible and to learn and to change. I would also, um, suggest as much as you can to link with a social worker or somebody who can be a resource for participants who you will identify or looking for other things that you as a coach can't provide. (laughs) And, and, and the biggest thing for our coaches is, Uh, boundaries like be really careful about your own boundaries um but i i think you know it's what you're doing is reaching out and finding out best practices and stealing the ones that are the best practices and and using them um i think there's this little moment though because there's a a group i know there's little pockets around the world there's a a kickboxing program in england being run the same thing a woman tiffany williams who's been doing stuff there and so i think like to connect us all and just you know share what works and i I think you know to to do this and then i do suggest if you can if you can have somebody who can think about fundraising donors or if you can connect with the researchers who can spend a little of their time looking at uh ways to support through different grants and even if they're one-offs and um it's really good but i think there's a and there's a group there's another I don't know if she's in, she's in Scotland, but I don't know if she's a kickboxer or a boxer who's been doing some trauma informed stuff too. So I think that to kind of, to make these connections and, and it would be great. Yeah. If I'll try and find out. So Tiffany Wall. William. Williams. Williams. So Tiffany yeah. Williams. Okay. Yeah. I'll definitely try and reach out to her. Like I said, it's, it doesn't seem on the surface. It's funny when you try and Google this sort of stuff, you try and look for it. Like it doesn't automatically come up because it's just not quite there yet, but it's like, it's just below the surface where if you start to dig, you can see other people are just like, Oh yeah. And it's, it's overwhelming the amount of people who are just like, yes, this, this like has to be a thing. Like I've sort of on my own gone and done, you know, I've had people, I've done Taekwondo, I've done Krav Maga, I've done Aikido, I've done, um, Capoeira, um, and I've had trauma and I wish my instructor was more trauma informed, but I've been strong enough to voice my own needs. So it's been able to work for me, but it's for those women in particular who just aren't at that point yet where they, they can't set their own boundaries. Yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong too with like, you know, coaches, no matter what they're doing, like, I think coaches are now, I think we need coaching education around trauma more widely than just trauma informed programs specifically, because, you know, every classroom, every, every gym has people with stories we'll never know. And so I think, you know, to, to approach it that way, I think it's important too, that we just need more coaches learning about trauma and identifying what that might look like in people and, and supporting, you know, just understanding what it is. Yeah. I think that's the number one reason. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in MMA gyms and, that's the main reason people are there. You just hear over and over again, boxing saved me, Muay Thai saved me, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu saved me. They're, they're there fighting their own demons, but just without specific guidance. And it's like, God, imagine if we just, you know, tuned into that just a little bit more, how much more effective the training would be for those people. Yeah, absolutely. 
Is there anything you want to say to women who are out there? Not everyone is in Canada. I mean, it's a lockdown now, so it's kind of hard getting into (laughs) boxing programs. Uh, We're likely to be in lockdown for I don't know how long. I don't know if you've seen the numbers in the part of Australia that I'm in, but they're going up. So (laughs) we're, we're anticipating for being online for a long time. But I guess, yeah, could you give two pieces of advice? So one for the world that we're in right now and one for just generally if this is something that, people are looking at putting themselves into what advice do you have for women the, the, I'll start with the, the second one um, advice would be you will find something that suits you don't give up if you walk into a gym and it's not the right gym or the right program um, as you said there's kickboxing there's boxing there's uh, you know there's so many different you know for somebody else it might be grappling there's so many different ways and even if you do find out that uh combat sports not your jam there's something else that is and it might be the trauma-informed yoga but but keep searching for ways to find uh a space for your own body where your body you can be in your body and it feels safe and powerful however that looks it's worth giving yourself every opportunity to find that and it doesn't matter what you know, martial art it is, but find it, keep searching, find it. Um, And in terms of for now, while we're under COVID, you know, I think um, we have to just take care of ourselves now. And that might look differently to everybody. And for some people that might be, you know, jumping on an online platform and other people, it's just getting through it and, and taking care. And, um, and I think just reaching out, it's so socially isolating, you know, Violence and trauma is incredibly isolating. Now, um, add on the the fact that we're all spending way more time in our in our homes um, is to reach out and uh, you know reach out and and have people reach out to you. Um, and I think just don't put too much pressure on things right now. Well, you know, while this is happening, but it's also a great time to find places like you know you're going to be starting there and and the work you're doing in Australia and wherever people are. There's there's got to be something so just making those connections now would be worthwhile definitely where can people find you so if they're canada-based where can they find you and online and everything where are you yeah so one of the easiest things because my name's a bit tricky might be just looking up uh, shape your life boxing so shapeyourlifeboxing.com will send you to our website and then from there you can find other or on um, Facebook and Instagram and, and other places. Um, and my name is Kathy Van Ingen at Brock University and you can find uh, resources there and some of my work. Um, and uh, yeah, I would say definitely one of the things that if people are interested is check out the art that the Shape Your Life program uh, has created. There's there's ways I can link to pe- people to that online or there's articles about it, uh, newspaper articles too. So. Um, yeah, it's worth checking out. Definitely. I'll put a link to your website and I know there's like the video about the artwork that's on there as well. And we'll put how to spell your name in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone will be able to find you and connect with you. But yeah, Sounds thank great. you so, so much for sitting down with me. I think this has been a great conversation for all women and humans of the world to <laughs> hear about as this starts to become more and more prevalent as a way that we look at helping people heal from trauma. Thanks so much. I was really happy when I I heard about the Fight Back Project. I think it's brilliant. So thanks so much. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Fight Back podcast. If you liked this episode, could you do me a huge favor? Could you leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? It really does change a lot for the visibility of this podcast and help it be seen by other women. If you want to connect with me, we are on Instagram at at fightbackproject and on Facebook as The Fightback Project. Please reach out to me any questions that you have about martial arts, mental health, or literally anything. I'm more than happy to chat. Bye, love.